0: This week on Life and Faith. I think we in the West have told ourselves that part of our mission is to constantly seek to secure ourselves against the rest of humanity. And I think it's been disastrous for our national health and well-being and happiness. I think there's a real hollowness that we feel um, in Australia and elsewhere in the West as we're aware of the enormous harm that we're doing to vulnerable outsiders, but we've just somehow convinced ourselves that we need to do it for our own safety. I think we need to really be wrestling anew with what we want to be as Australians.
1: We have this sense that we've got to always say yes to every opportunity.
0: And of course in politics, there is a real tendency to be looking for the decision that gives you the media hit.
1: Definitions of human nature affect who counts as human.
2: Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX, I'm Simon Smart.
1: And I'm Justine Toe. And I'm sure you've seen in the news lately the story of Priya and Nadez Murugapan, a Tamil family. Their little girl, Thanikar, was seriously ill for almost two weeks before being medically evacuated to Perth for treatment because the whole family has been held in detention on Christmas Island since August 2019. Now, photos of the young girl in hospital in obvious distress have struck a nerve with people And Simon, it's put the spotlight on the deliberate harshness for several years now of Australian asylum seeker policy.
2: Yes, uh, we've all seen the story and it's a heart-wrenching one, isn't it? Once you see Mm. the faces of people in these situations, it's hard to to turn away. And it's complicated, though, as these things tend to be. It's really complicated. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the parents arrived by boat in Australia. It was about a decade ago. And they've lived in the community while having their refugee status assessed then they had two daughters so the kids have been born in australia but the family the parents have not been found to pass the test of being genuine refugees so given all of that including the fact that their children are born in Australia. It's, it's very complicated. There's a lot of people, though, who are campaigning for them to stay, including the town that they lived in, Biloela, which is in uh, central Queensland. People there loved this family, really wanted them to stay. The dad was working at the abattoir there. But there's lots of other people as well have got on board. There's several Greens politicians, which is perhaps not so surprising, surprising but yeah. lots of coalition MPs supporting them. And people like Barnaby Joyce and Alan Jones, which, the radio announcer.
1: Which did shock me, I have to admit. I want to thank everybody for their love and
2: good wish. We hope Taranika can get the
3: help she needs now. Please help us to get her out of detention and home to
1: Bilola. That was Priya from Thanika's hospital bedside from a news clip from The Guardian. And while it's true that Priya and Nadez haven't been found to be genuine refugees entitled to Australian protection, the family does put a face on the kind of people who've been at the receiving end of Australia's hardline asylum seeker policy for some years now. And as you said earlier, Simon, having seen them, it really is hard to just turn your back on them.
2: Yeah, and whatever the politics of the issue, and it really is a complicated issue, I'm conscious, Justin, that good people on both sides of politics have tried and, let's be honest, have failed to come up with a solution that's both humane and generous, but also practically applicable. But given the support this family has gathered from across the political spectrum, the story has, in a sense, put on the agenda again the possibility of welcoming and providing refuge for vulnerable people. And even in a sense, just need to kind of reimagine the issue of refuge, which is to pick up on the title of a book of our guests today. So in this Refugee Week, we're bringing you an interview with Mark and Luke Glanville. They're two brothers who've written a book called Refuge Reimagined, Biblical Kinship in Global Politics.
1: Yeah, Mark is an associate professor of pastoral theology at Regent College in Vancouver, and he's also been the minister of a church that has created an intentional community with refugees, and that's called Kinbrace. We'll hear about that later in the program. And Luke is an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at Australian National University. So I began our interview by asking Luke to provide a snapshot of the global refugee situation and to elaborate on a really surprising statistic that the vast majority of refugees are hosted by developing countries.
0: Right now, there's 80 million or so people forcibly displaced for reasons of violence and war and conflict, persecution and other kind of threats to order and stability that have forced them to flee their homes. The majority of those are what is called internally displaced. 40 odd million uh, are internally displaced in the sense that they have had to flee their homes, had to flee their communities, but remain within their country of origin. And the rest, uh, 30 or so million, have fled beyond the borders of their countries of origin and are now recognised by the UN as refugees Um, 85% of them are still within developing regions of the world, neighbours to conflict. And so countries like Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, Bangladesh and others house um, and care for and and welcome the vast majority of the world's refugees. And at times over the last decade, Lebanon and, and Jordan, for example, one in four or one in six people in those countries have been refugees, particularly Syrian refugees. The scale is enormous and distressing.
1: Of the refugees that are officially recognised as such by the UN, how many would get resettled? What's the picture there?
0: Yeah, so so resettlement refers to a kind of a, a permanent solution to this issue of displacement that is given to certain people, whereby they are given a path to citizenship in a new country. The US, Canada and Australia, for example, resettle tens of thousands of refugees each year. But collectively, the global community resettle in recent years less than 1% of the global refugee population in any any given year, particularly last year. uh, The figures were unusually low, hopefully unusually low, due in part to COVID. But in recent years, it's been around 100,000 or 150,000-odd refugees being resettled and given a path to citizenship in a new country each year, which, as I say, is a very, very, very small percentage of those who are in need of safety and protection and home.
1: So from what I also read in the book, there's been a growing decline in offers as well. What's going on there? And also we've seen this rise of nativism and populism in recent years, and that often seems to go along with a turning inward, I suppose, and looking after ourselves first.
0: That's right. Yeah, I think that is what's going on there. Um, The Trump era was a disaster uh, for refugees around the world. The US, over the past 20, 30, 40 years, has tended to contribute somewhere between a third and half of the world's resettlement places for refugees. And other countries have tended to follow the US's lead. And so when Trump, as president, drastically drew down Um, the ceiling on refugee places from around 100,000 down to 15,000 or 12,000 in his final year. That uh, did uh, terrible things to the global total, but it also encouraged other states to draw down their numbers, knowing that their reputations weren't going to suffer. As a result, they could just point to Trump's lead.
1: Well, let's not just roast um, the US for their Mm -hmm. actions. What particular challenges does Australia face? I'm struck by this column that Waleed Ali, the political commentator, wrote in late 2020, that uh, a harsh border policy was key to stopping COVID, but you could also argue it was key to stopping the boat arrivals. So what are those challenges that Australia particularly face uh, when it comes to reimagining the refuge and refugee issue?
0: Yeah, there's, there's kind of two separate issues in play here. On, on the one hand, there's the resettlement programs that countries have in place to resettle um, a particular number of refugees each year. And as I say, Australia has tended to resettle in recent years somewhere between 10 and 20,000 refugees each year. But separate to that is the issue of asylum seekers, which is to do with those who, for Reasons often of desperation, this need to continue to move away from developing regions of the world in search of safety, or in search of um, dignity, in search of opportunities, uh, perhaps for schooling for their children, or opportunities to work, opportunities to rebuild their lives, seek asylum, uh, particularly in the global north, in countries like Australia, often um, in in desperate need, and Australia has for some time now had a policy that anyone who arrives at our borders in search of asylum will never be granted refuge. And instead, they have been detained offshore in intentionally punitive ways in order to deter others from trying to make the same journeys and trying to seek asylum here at enormous financial costs, but more importantly, at enormous harmful costs to those desperate people themselves.
1: Yeah, there's been several um, reports talking about the Mental health crisis that a lot mm-hmm. of people in indefinite detention are suffering. But I'm guessing I'm, I mean, you allude to the fact that there's been a lot of support for this. There's practically bipartisan support for a deterrence measures. Mm. Um, how can you try to encourage Australians to reimagine this issue when these are the harsh realities on the ground?
0: Yeah, I, I think there really is a need to reimagine. Australia's national identity, reimagine who we are. What we try to offer in the book is this invitation to uh, celebrate the opportunity that we have as a comfortable, wealthy, secure, safe country to embrace and enfold much larger numbers of vulnerable people who are in desperate need of asylum and refuge. Um, And that involves necessarily Uh, the opportunity to embrace our own vulnerabilities. I think there's this real need to put to an end this constant seeking for security. I think we in the West have told ourselves that part of our mission is to constantly seek to secure ourselves against the rest of humanity, including refugees. We think of this in terms of, I think, a tension between the threats that we face in terms of threats possibly to our security or to our economic interests or perhaps to our, our shared bond or our national identity. So threats on the one hand and our decisions on how charitable or how generous to be on the other. I think that's how we've tended to teach ourselves and to accept that that's the categories in which we do this thinking in terms of threats and in terms of, yeah, this discretionary generosity that we, we might, if we choose to, provide to um, vulnerable others. And I think it's been disastrous for our national health and well-being and happiness. I think there's a real hollowness that we feel um, in Australia and elsewhere in the West, as we're aware of the enormous harm that we're doing to vulnerable outsiders, but we've just somehow convinced ourselves that we need to do it for our own safety. And partly as a matter of empirical fact, it's not true. We don't need to. The economic threats, the security threats are vastly overblown, but also just as a matter of morality and what it means to be a country, I think we need to really be wrestling anew with what we want to be as Australians.
1: Well, can I um, quote Tony Abbott to you? You do talk about this passage in the book. He went to give the Margaret Thatcher lecture in London a couple of years ago, and he talked about how this idea of love thy neighbour is the basis for Western values. Um, And he basically said that love thy neighbour is well and good. But at the same time, we cannot allow just anyone unrestricted access over our border. Europe is doing this at the moment, and it is killing Europe, basically. He was the leader of Australia for a time. When you have that sort of semi-theology, I guess, Mm. and making a theological statement, but mixing it with politics as well, when you have the leader of a country saying that, what hope do you have that there can be a way to reimagine it when this is the sort of discourse that we hear?
0: I see a lot of hope in the very practical example of Angela Merkel in 2015 in Germany. It's not a perfect example, it's a complex example, but in 2015, Angela Merkel opened Germany's borders to more than a million asylum seekers fleeing Syria and elsewhere, and did so with a message to the German people saying, we can take pride in this, we can be happy that we're doing justice and we're embracing vulnerable people who we have great capacity to care for and welcome. And you saw a really hopeful response from the German people as there was, for a time at least, a celebration of this opportunity to do good in community with each other, in solidarity with vulnerable people. As Merkel herself at times said, this is also an opportunity to make reparation in one way or another for some of Germany's past injustices. And there was, yeah, as I say, this collective celebration of the happiness and pride that Germany could take in that moment.
1: That was, um, that was complicated though, right?
0: Mm, it's a complicated example. Um, there were horrific examples of sexual assaults and other crimes committed by some of the asylum seekers. Overall, though, Germany's crime rates went down uh, from 2015 onwards, so that's worth pointing out. It was politically costly to Angela Merkel. There was a backlash. Not all of Germany was on board with this idea. But again, Angela Merkel survived politically. And I kind of, I tend to think if you're going to expend some political capital um, and suffer some political backlash, what better way to do it than caring for vulnerable people?
2: You're listening to Life and Faith, and Justine is talking with Luke and Mark Glanville about refugee politics in Australia and abroad. Their book is Refuge Reimagined, Biblical Kinship and Global Politics. Now, does this ring a bell?
0: It is also about having an uncompromising view about the fundamental right of this country to protect its borders. It's about this nation saying to the world, we are a generous, open-hearted people taking more refugees on a per capita basis than any nation except Canada. We have a proud record of welcoming people from 140 different nations, but we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come.
2: That was former Australian Prime Minister John Howard at the Liberal Party federal election campaign launch in 2001, speaking on what became known as the Pacific Solution, where people arriving by boat would be intercepted by the Navy and then transferred to offshore processing centres in Nauru and Manus Island to have their refugee status assessed. That was a very striking moment in our nation's history. I remember hearing about this. I was living in Canada at the time, and it probably won the Liberal Party the election.
1: That is definitely the, the vibe I got to. Mm. Yeah.
2: Now, it's important to say, I think, that this policy is now bipartisan. It works, and it is considered the only politically viable option by both major parties
1: it is a reality of politics in this country. It's true. Now we heard from John Howard because we're just about to launch into a bunch of responses that Luke gives to common what about questions related to the refugee and asylum seeker Mm, issue. There's lots of these. I think they're fair enough really. Mm. So in this second half of the podcast also, we're finally going to hear from Mark as well. So do listen out for him. But first to Luke, what about a nation's right to control its own borders?
0: That statement by John Howard is appealing to a certain conception of state sovereignty. And we've come to believe, we've taught ourselves to think that sovereigns have a right, an absolute right to control who comes into their territories. And it's important to realize that that is a human construction, a historically recent human construction, one that is um, not inherent in any meaningful sense to what sovereignty means, that the meaning of sovereignty, the rights and responsibilities of sovereignty are for states to construct. And just because states construct sovereignty in one particular way doesn't mean that that is just. And I'd also point to the fact that this strict control over sovereign borders is really a recent phenomenon of 100 or 150 years. And it's worth noting also that it it coincides with the achievement of the West of a state of hegemony globally. So a preponderance of power. It was only once colonies such as ours and and Western states, including Europe, but also the US, Canada, Australia, and other Western states, achieved global dominance that we started to put up our borders, exclude outsiders. Um, There are certainly examples of exclusion prior to that. But that's really when these anti-immigration laws were enacted in the US and Canada and Australia. That's when the white Australia policy was introduced. So again, there's a a history of racial injustice to the particular construction of sovereignty that we take for granted today.
1: What about the whole, they will change our way of life? How would you respond to that critique?
0: My first response is I think we need to reckon with how our way of life has been constructed historically and how our national identity has come to be. For us in Australia as a former penal colony, settler colony, our national identity, our way of life, is a product of horrific injustices against Indigenous peoples, horrific exclusion of certain people groups, the white Australia policy, obviously, which meant that for 70 years or so, Australia's immigration policy was racist. That's not the entire story, of course, but our national identity is in part a product of the past exclusion of others. So my initial response is to say we need to be very careful to say that we need to yet again exclude people so as to preserve this way of life. I'd also say that when we talk about our way of life, we need to also reckon with the fact that we have immigration programs that aren't necessarily aimed at the maintenance of a particular national identity, which is this national identity argument is so often used to explain limits to refugee numbers, but our immigration programs tend to be focused on highly skilled workers or wealthy workers. So many Western states have these programs in place that people can buy uh, fast track to citizenship. Really, that tells us about our true national identity in one way or another, that it's it's not this um, this focus on social bonds and shared values is often put to one side in the desire for money.
1: And what about this idea that, oh, you know, we should look after those in our neighbourhood, the people over there, you know, I feel bad for them, but we need to look after our own first. How do you respond to that?
0: I'd say two things. I think I would firstly say, well, let's do that too, definitely. Uh, I think we too quickly point to that as an excuse. And we tend to think that we're limited in what we can do when we can do so much more, particularly a wealthy, comfortable nation such as ours. But then secondly, I'd point to the way in which a country like Australia is so deeply implicated in and complicit in the suffering and displacement of so many people around the world. We can't just say they have nothing to do with us because at various times we invaded their countries. At various times we have benefited from um, unjust trade regimes that have contributed to the sustained impoverishment of other countries generating the conditions of instability that lend themselves to conflicts that generate displacement crises. We have contributed to the destruction of the global climate, which is more and more amplifying the kinds of crises that generate displacement. And so we have a responsibility as a matter of justice and as a rep- matter of reparation and repentance even for the injustices that we have perpetrated against people who have become displaced.
2: Reparation and repentance. Now, let's bring Mark in here to address how the Christian idea of repentance might speak to the unjust actions of nations and communities and not
3: simply individuals. I think we know intuitively as humans that history matters and that outrageous atrocities in history toward people groups or toward one another matter and they, they affect relationships both between individuals and between people groups. And so when we look at the complicity, as you say, of the West in forced displacement, or if we look at First Nations settler relations, or even if we look at the destruction of the climate and and global warming, that somehow our behavior now and our relationships has to be commensurate with the wrong that's been done and the hurt that we've caused. And the way that through these foolish wars and unjust trade rules and arms trades, that Australia and Canada and the US and the UK have been complicit in creating the forced displacement, let alone climate change, that's driving further displacement and will into the coming century, means that it's not just, if you like, morally right or desirable to welcome, but it's a matter of righting wrongs. It's a matter of, uh, if you like, acknowledging that we've done wrong and realising that this is a matter of right relationship, that we step in and welcome, not because we're beneficent, not because we're charitable, but because that's now our responsibility.
1: How do you then explain then that, particularly in some parts of the world, perhaps the US, perhaps Australia as well, Christians are sometimes seen as being on the right, and that often means that they are anti-immigration and not wanting to let people in. If if Christians have this theology of repentance, how, how do you explain or account for the fact that you've got Christians on both sides of this issue?
3: Well, I think that our um, hyper-individualized understanding of the biblical story and of the gospel, and our otherworldly understanding of the biblical story and the gospel, that kind of goes along the lines that the Bible and Christianity is all about individual souls being saved so we can go to heaven when we die. That has means that the sphere of community and the sphere of people groups and the sphere of history has been vacated by many Christians. And that's meant, I think, that things have rushed in to fill the gap. Um, social values that are in the broader society, such as nationalism, even militarized nationalism in the US, uh, such as consumerism and under restrained, insufficiently restrained capitalism, has rushed in to fill the vacuum. I think that's where the problem lies.
1: Yeah, and I'm struck that in the book you talk about how this is a spiritual challenge, and perhaps that's why you would argue that.
3: Right, a spiritual challenge. And as for those who trust Scripture as the Word of God, we, we need to read Scripture aright. and We need to understand that the Bible is a story of God in Christ, recovering God's good purposes for the creation. It's not enough just to have an individualized salvation We have to have the heart of God for the world and the heart of God for one another. And in that way, it's a spiritual task.
1: Mark, can you explain this idea of kinship? And you have a very Christian way of approaching it. So in the midst of your answer, can you also tell me why someone who isn't Christian can benefit from this particular metaphor as well?
3: Sure. In our book, um, we try and unfold... uh, an understanding of kinship. And by kinship, you mean who do we belong to and who are we responsible for? And we can have uh, both as nation states and as nuclear families, we can have different versions of who we're responsible for and who we belong to. And I believe that the Bible calls us in Old and New Testaments to reconfigure our kinship circles and to consider leaning toward vulnerability and to be bringing the weakest to the centre and to be enfolding the weakest as family. Not just to be offering charity, uh, not just to be offering handouts, but a familial posture of mutuality and welcome, uh, where we are both vulnerable and embrace one another. And this is a vision for the nation-state too, because, uh, I mean, nation-states can be conceived of as families. We think of the motherland, the founding fathers. Uh, And again, the question is, what kind of family, what kind of community do we want to be?
1: Let's go back to Luke for a moment to join some dots between this notion of kinship and another idea that they talk about in the book, the idea of rooted cosmopolitanism, which seems to strike a balance between having a concern for strangers and yet also being bound to a local community.
0: So we discussed this idea of rooted cosmopolitanism as a way of offering a kind of, I suppose, a secular parallel with the kind of argument we're making about national identity and the opportunity to welcome outsiders. So Kwame Anthony Apaya and other scholars of cosmopolitanism have offered this idea of rooted cosmopolitanism as an alternative to what is often criticized as the kind of abstracted, unrelational notion of cosmopolitanism that's sometimes offered, where they emphasize that a rooted cosmopolitanism is one that does away with problematic racisms and exclusionisms and nationalisms that um, close oneself off from others, but at the same time doesn't just think of an abstracted humanity that we have to care for in some theoretical sense, but it's a very tangible enfolding of and embracing of the other within one's own community, or as as if uh, they are within our community. And so that applies in terms of the welcoming of refugees, but also in terms of the the caring for refugees in need elsewhere through humanitarian assistance and others.
1: I'd like to um, ask you to give me that example of rooted cosmopolitanism in the community kinbrace. Mark, can you tell us about uh, your time at kinbrace or your time at the church that started kinbrace? Is that right?
3: Yeah, the church in East Vancouver where I've been pastoring for seven years, up until recently, birthed kinbrace. 20 years ago. Uh, at the time when it was first, when newcomers would be seeking refugee status here in Vancouver, Canada, there was no place for them to be supported or even a designated place where they could live in a supportive way. And so a couple of people in our church stepped in seeking to fill that gap and other people who had some money in our church were able to buy a house in Vancouver. And since then, a the second house right next door has been purchased. And Kinbrace in the last 20 years has welcomed and supported and kind of championed through their refugee claimant process around six, 700 newcomers to Canada. Erin and I, in the non-COVID period, because Canada's still in lockdown, unfortunately, on Tuesday nights, we share in the Kinrace community meal and 20 to 40 people from all around the world uh, share in cuisines, often national cuisines, and sort of become a bit of a makeshift family together as we celebrate together life and welcome and sort of be in family together in this very unstable time in their lives. And it's been my real privilege to journey with friends and to even to go to some refugee claim hearings at that very most vulnerable day of their lives. It's a great blessing to our kids to be caught up in that kinship and those meals and just to realize what it means to be human. It's been wonderful for our family.
1: This is certainly something that communities of faith can be set up to do, practically speaking, isn't it?
3: That's right. It's a creative entrepreneurship that I've seen of many Christians and also of other faiths and also secular organizations, very often Christians in Canada and Australia. This creative entrepreneurship that just starts something fresh. In our book, we tell the story of of the amazing work of Ebony Birchall and Slater and Gordon in a class claim uh, on behalf of refugees in Manus Island tell the story of Jared McKenna's first home project and Kinbrace is an incredibly creative activity too. I think that when our imaginations can be open wide, uh, that can be a prophetic act. That can be an example to a different way of being in community together.
1: Now, you've probably picked up that Mark and Luke's book, Refuge Reimagined, is aimed at Christians. So it's worth finishing our interview with them by asking, what can people of different faiths and none get out of this book?
3: Shaping national identities towards generosity is something that every citizen or every person can be responsible for and I think that drawing deeply from a diversity of faith traditions is important within a nation state. I hope that those people who perhaps aren't Christ followers can find in the Christian tradition the generous heart of God and the love of God and the invitation to welcome the stranger on the basis of God's generous welcome of us, of humanity.
2: That was Mark Glanville, co-author with his brother Luke Glanville of Refuge Reimagined, Biblical Kinship in Global Politics.
1: A big thanks to Luke and Mark for talking to us about it, especially for Mark who joined us from lockdown in Canada. Mark, we hope you'll be able to safely enjoy being out and about again and COVID-free as well. Meanwhile, I'll post a link to the book on the show notes.
2: If you've enjoyed this episode, please do pass it on to someone you think would get something out of it too, or leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others discover our show. Also, please consider supporting the work of Life and Faith. Our aim is to host generous conversations about faith and belief in contemporary life, connecting religion to everyday experience and the pressing issues in our world. Search for Life and Faith podcast to find us and then hit the support button to make a donation. All donations over $2 are tax deductible.
1: We're going to be taking a break over the next two weeks to prepare more great content for Life and Faith. So we'll see you back in mid-July.